Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, everyone. Before I begin, I'd like to note that all my comments 
uh, on an adjusted basis for the bank and our business lines. As I did last quarter, I will refer to quarter-over-quarter -quarter performance in many areas, given the economic impact of the pandemic in 2020, while reflecting that Q2 was a shorter quarter when assessing performance. I will begin with a review of all bank performance for the quarter on slide five. The bank reported strong performance across key metrics of EPS growth, return on equity, operating leverage, and capital. Total earnings were $2.5 billion, and diluted EPS was $1.90 for the quarter, an increase in EPS of 83% year-over-year, and growing quarter-over-quarter quarter despite a shorter quarter. All operating segments delivered strong results this quarter. Return on equity continues to improve, rising to 14.9% from 14.4% last quarter, above the bank's medium-term objective. Pre-tax pre-provision earnings improved 2% year-over-year, driven by strong expense management. Revenue declined 3% year-over-year, or in line with last year, excluding the negative impact of foreign currency translation as the Canadian dollar strengthened against most currencies. Net interest income was down 3%, excluding the impact of FX, as the core buying banking margin declined 9 basis points year-over-year. The year-over-year decline in margin was due to central bank rate cuts and changes to business mix to more secured retail and higher commercial corporate loan growth. Quarter-over-quarter, margin was down only one basis point in line with our expectations. However, non-interest income increased 1% with strong 11% growth in fee and commission income offset by lower trading revenues and lower investment gains. The PCL ratio continued to decrease, falling to 33 basis points for the quarter. This represents a meaningful decline of 16 basis points quarter over quarter and 86 basis points year over year. Daniel will discuss credit metrics in more detail in our risk discussion later in the call. We continue to manage expenses prudently. On a year over year basis, expenses declined 7% or 1% excluding the metals business charges taken in 2020 and divestitures. This decrease was due to lower personal cost, foreign exchange translation, and lower advertising, business development, and professional fees, with some offsets from higher performance-based compensation costs. Year-to-date, expenses are down 4%. The productivity ratio continued to decline, falling to 51.9%, compared to 54% a year ago. And the bank generated a strong positive year-to-date operating leverage of 3.4%. On slide six, we provide an evolution of a common equity tier one capital ratio over the quarter. The bank reported a strong CD1 ratio of 12.3%, improving 10 basis points from Q1 and 140 basis points from a year ago. This was due primarily to strong internal capital generation offset by good growth in risk-weighted assets. Excluding the impact of FX, risk-weighted assets grew $6 billion, mainly from growth in business banking and retail mortgages in both Canadian and international banking. We also had additional benefits from pension remeasurement in the quarter, driven by higher discount rates. In the next quarter, our capital ratio will be impacted by approximately 25 basis points due to the increase in the CBA multiplier 
and the closing of the transaction to acquire 7% of the minority interest in Chile. However, we expect the CET1 ratio to remain around the 12.2% level for the rest of the year, driven by strong internal capital generation. Turning now to the business line results beginning on slide 7, Canadian banking had another strong quarter as the rebound in earnings continued with net income of $931 million, up 94% year-over-year and 2% quarter-over-quarter. The year-over-year increase was driven primarily by lower PCLs and higher revenues. Pre-tax pre-provision earnings grew a strong 7% year-over-year as solid loan and deposit growth, higher fee income, and disciplined expense management were partially offset by marginal compression. Revenue was up 4%, driven by higher non-interest revenue, partly offset by lower net interest income. Compared to the prior year, non-interest revenue increased a significant 20%, while net interest income declined a modest 1%, driven by lower margins. Higher non-interest revenue was driven by higher banking fees, mutual fund distribution fees, and income from associated corporations. Residential mortgages grew a strong 8%, and business lending grew 4% year-over-year, in line with the strategic priorities of the business. The net interest margin was stable to the prior quarter at 2.26%, and in line with our expectations. Year-over-year -year margin compression was mainly due to changes in business mix and deposit margin compression, but was partly offset by higher margins in residential mortgages and commercial lending, as well as higher deposit balances. Expenses increased a modest 1%, primarily driven by higher technology costs to support business development. Good revenue growth and prudent management of expenses resulted in a strong year-to-date positive operating leverage of 1.6%. The PCL ratio decreased to 16 basis points, which is 61 basis points lower year-over-year year and 7 basis points lower than Q1. We expect the Canadian banking business earnings to continue to grow for the rest of the year with stable PCL. <coughs> Turning now to global wealth management on slide 8, earnings of $378 million were up a strong 21% year-over-year, driven by strong mutual fund fees and brokerage revenues offset by higher volume-related expenses. Revenue grew a strong 16%, while non-interest expenses grew 14%, contributing to a positive operating leverage of 2.5% for the quarter and 5.4% year-to-date. Global wealth management has generated positive operating leverage in six consecutive quarters. Canadian wealth management grew a strong 25% year-over-year and 4% quarter-over-quarter, excluding the performance fee benefit in the prior quarter, driven by continued sales momentum. All eight of our Canadian businesses saw double-digit earnings growth year-over-year. Year. Assets under management increased 19% to $332 billion, while AUA increased 20% to $571 billion from the prior year, driven by positive net sales and market appreciation. Sales activity was strong in the quarter. We ranked number two for the quarter in retail mutual fund net sales in Canada with record net sales of $4.3 billion. We expect the global wealth management business to continue to perform strongly for the rest of the year 
with improving contributions from our international wealth operations. Moving to slide line, global banking and markets. The business generated strong earnings of $517 million, demonstrating consistent earnings from the benefits of a diversified business model. Net income was down slightly year over year, as the business benefited from very strong capital markets and lending activities at the onset of the pandemic last year. Revenue growth was impacted by moderating fixed income trading revenues and the negative impact of foreign exchange was partly offset by higher equity trading revenues and underwriting fees. The business is well positioned to grow as we expect good corporate loan growth in the second half of the year and our advisory business pipelines remain strong. Expenses increased 3% year over year as we continue to invest in technology and incur higher volume related expenses. The productivity ratio was 50.3% for the quarter in line with our investor day target. Turning to the next slide on international banking, my comments that follow are on an adjusted and constant dollar basis. International banking reported net income of $429 million, up 165% year over year, and 11% quarter over quarter. Improving economic and business conditions, higher loan growth in the second half of the year, and prudent expense management support our continued optimism for the division and our expectation of achieving $500 million of earnings in this business segment by Q4 2021. Pre-tax pre-provision earnings declined 8% year over year and 4% from the prior quarter, but was up 1%, excluding the impact of the shorter quarter. Strong performance in Mexico was more than offset by a decline in Peru, driven by lower credit cards and personal loans. Revenue declined 2% quarter over quarter, adjusting for the impact of the shorter quarter, primarily due to lower credit card and personal loan balances, while fee and commission income improved 4%. Total loans declined 2% year over year, as a strong 6% growth in mortgages was offset by 11% reduction in credit cards and personal loans and a decline of 2% in commercial loan balances. However, loans grew 1% quarter over quarter. Retail was flat as mortgage growth of 1% was offset by a decline in credit cards and personal loans of approximately 3%, while commercial loans grew 1%. We expect continued growth in mortgages and commercial lending in the second half of the year. Net interest margin of 3.95% declined 8 basis points compared to Q1, driven by the lower interest rate environment, changes in business mix, with continued increase in credit cards and personal loans, and growth in lower margin commercial loans. Non-interest income declined 5% quarter over quarter and year over year, reflecting lower insurance income, income from associated corporations and card fees, though offset partially by higher banking the provision for credit loss ratio declined quarter over quarter by 31 basis points to 118 basis points. Expenses continued to decline 4% year over year and 5% compared to Q1, driven by lower personal costs, digital progress, and other efficiency initiatives. Now turning to the other segment, we reported earnings of $130 million. The increase year-over-year year from a net loss of $166 million in 2020 
released primarily to charges related to the metals business in 2020. Strong contribution from asset liability management activities, driven by prudent management of wholesale funding and interest rate risk, resulted in higher net interest income in the segment. I'll now turn the call over to Daniel to discuss this. Thank you, Raj. Good morning, everyone. I'll begin my remarks on slide 12. Turning first to credit quality. Our credit quality continues to be high, and the trends are positive as economic growth accelerates across our footprint. Our gill ratio of 81 basis points was down three basis points from last quarter and has remained stable for the past four quarters. Retail gross impaired loans, net of FX, declined a modest $91 million as new formations were offset by write-offs, primarily in international retail. Gills in business banking net of FX increased $109 million as we saw new formations in two accounts for which we have reserved appropriately. On the bottom of slide 13, you can see the all-bank net write-off ratio increased to 76 basis points. The increase was primarily driven by international banking, specifically retail. Last quarter, we spoke to the higher levels of late-stage delinquencies in Peru and Colombia, which have resulted in higher levels of, which have higher levels of unsecured exposures. As expected, these rolled forward and resulted in elevated write-offs this quarter for which we were comfortably provided. Given the strong performance of our remaining portfolio, we expect the write-offs in international retail to decline next quarter, trending towards our pre-pandemic levels by the end of the year. Meanwhile, write-offs in Canadian banking are below pre-pandemic levels and GBM remains stable. Turning to slide 14, the bank ended the quarter with total allowances of $6.9 billion. That's a reduction of over $900 million from the prior quarter, driven by elevated write-offs. Consequently, the ACL ratio declined to 109 basis points from 125 basis points last quarter. Performing loan allowances declined about $700 million to $4.8 billion, excluding the impact of FX. Approximately $200 million of this was released due to improving credit quality and the better macroeconomic outlook. The remaining decline in performing loan allowances was primarily related to allowances for impaired loans to support elevated write-offs. Impaired loan ACLs remained in line with last quarter. The transfer of allowances on performing loans offset the higher level of write-offs we spoke of. It's worth noting that as these expected write-offs occur, the overall credit quality of the remaining portfolio improves. And, that, and we expect the ACL ratio to trend below 100 basis points by the end of the year. Let me now turn to the income statement and provisions for credit loss on slide 15. Our total PCLs declined to $496 million. The total PCL ratio was 33 basis points, down 16 basis points from the prior quarter. Beginning with our impaired PCLs, we reported $1.19 billion in Q2 
up $430 million from last quarter. This represents an impaired PCR ratio of 80 basis points, an increase of 31 basis points quarter over quarter. The increase was primarily driven by international retail as the expiry of deferrals resulted in higher delinquencies, mainly in Peru and Colombia. In contrast, impaired PCLs for GBM and Canadian banking were stable. Turning to performing PCLs, we had a net reversal of $696 million in Q2, down from positive $2 million in Q1. Approximately $200 million of the reversal represents a release of allowances built in prior periods that's no longer required. This reflects better credit quality and the improved macroeconomic outlook. We expect similar levels of releases in future quarters. So let me conclude with a few comments. First, our asset quality remains high and the credit trends are favorable. Secondly, our PCL outlook is positive for the remainder of 2021 with net write-offs and impaired provisions having peaked this quarter. Third, we expect to see additional releases from our performing allowances for the balance of the year. And finally, we expect the all-bank PCL ratio to be in the mid-30s basis point range for the remainder of financial year 21, with the PCL ratio in international banking continuing to improve sequentially for the rest of the year. These trends are in line with the repositioning and de-risking of the bank, which have taken place in recent years. With improving economic growth across our footprint, we expect strong credit performance in the future. I will now turn the call over to Brian for closing remarks. <clears throat> Thank you, Daniel. I'd like to close our presentation today with a few comments and observations before turning it over to Q&A. Firstly, as I reflect on our results, I am encouraged by the steadily improving operating environment and the more optimistic economic outlook as vaccine deployment accel accelerates across our footprint. We are seeing continual improvement in customer activity as the economic recovery takes hold. At the same time, the forecast for GDP growth this year in our six core markets has improved to 6.5% on average, up from 5.8% just last quarter. That, combined with a booming market for commodities, makes us increasingly optimistic in our outlook. Secondly, we are seeing similar business trends across all our core markets, be they developed markets such as Canada or growth markets in the Pacific Alliance. These trends include strong growth in secured lending such as mortgages, a recovery in automotive lending where we are the market leader, and subdued growth in cards. As the economic recovery gains speed, we expect a recovery to more normal growth rates and to pre-pandemic levels of revenue in businesses that have been most affected. For example, annual, annual revenue in autos, cards, and insurance in Canadian banking is approximately $400 million below pre-pandemic levels. In international banking, fee and commission revenue is about $200 million lower. We expect a gradual recovery of these revenue lines in the coming quarters. 
Thirdly, we continue to see strong progress in digital banking with double-digit growth of active mobile users in both Canada and the Pacific Alliance. Over the past 12 months, we have added close to 1 million mobile banking customers who are attracted by the convenience and high quality of our mobile banking offering. This reflects the growing digital dividend, which, we will help, which will help to drive our productivity ratio lower over time. Turning to international banking with elections this year, there's considerable focus on political events in Peru and Mexico. While there is much focus on the risks associated with potential changes in governments, our experience over many decades in the region has taught us that these risks are often overstated. Invariably, it is economic growth, the strength of a country's institutions, and demographic trends that matter most. Simply stated, the economic backdrop trumps politics. When we consider the situation in the Pacific Alliance countries today, we are encouraged by a number of positive factors. Firstly, economic growth is accelerating as internal consumption and international trade increases. The strength in commodity prices, which have increased roughly 50% in the past 12 months, has created a significant export windfall and surging current account surpluses, which provide economic tailwinds. Secondly, policymakers have considerable latitude to manage the economic recovery given strong balance sheets and a low dependency on foreign capital. In closing, we are optimistic in our outlook for the remainder of the year, driven by continued strong growth in our Canadian banking, global wealth management, and global banking and markets businesses, and our confidence in the recovery in international banking. With that, I'll turn it over to Phil for the Q&A. Thank you, Brian. We will now be pleased to take your questions. Please limit yourself to one question and then rejoin the queue to allow everyone the opportunity to participate in the call. Operator, can we have the first question on the phone, please? Thank you. Our first question is from Ibrahim Punawala with the Bank of America Securities. Please go ahead. Good morning. Uh, uh, thanks, Brian, for that uh, uh, overview on uh, LATAM and just uh, the update there. Uh, I guess just sticking with international banking, one, uh, the $400 million in Canada and $200 million in uh, international banking revenue numbers that you cited, do you see, based on what you, how you see the world today, the revenue recovery in international banking lagging? And remind us uh, in terms of just how you see the revenue contribution from IB in the back half of the year and, and, and the loan growth. Uh, I, th I think you mentioned 6% uh, growth last quarter. How you see that playing out? Thank you. Thank you. I think uh, Raj is going to start with it, and then I think uh, Nacho has a supplementary. Yeah, Ibrahim, I'll start with your revenue question. The recovery of $200 million, you can split it fairly simply. There's insurance revenue that we're missing, and there's credit card revenues that we're missing in that business line, which equates to roughly about $60 million a quarter. So we've used the approximate number of $200 million. Not to suggest all of that is going to come back in Q3, for example, but we see the gradual recovery as retail spending starts coming back and retail asset growth happens. Since our insurance revenues are actually tied to the retail lending, particularly in the international banking space. On your question about the revenue recovery that we expect to see in international banking, 
we think you'll see sequential recovery, but it will be tied to the retail asset growth. So in IB, we expect to have mid-single-digit asset growth for the rest of the year compared to our balances in Q2. And that's going to be skewed, obviously, towards secured mortgages lending that you've seen even in the first half of the year and we continue to see. You're seeing good commercial growth starting this quarter, and we expect that to continue for the rest of the year. Unsecured lending or the personal credit card lending, we expect to be slower coming, but certainly it's going to start in Q3, but accelerate perhaps in Q4. Maybe not so you want to add some more to that. No, I think that, that's a good summary. Maybe I would also highlight that the retail bookings in the quarter were, were the best since COVID started, improving more than 20% Q over Q in retail. So basically, I, mean, I really miss one engine to, to, to go stronger, which is credit card personal loans, similar to what's happening in U.S. banks, and that will happen in the second half of the year. Also, I, 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 have, I think it's important to see the, the recovery in fees and commissions, which increased 4% QRQ, or $20 million. As, as Brian mentioned, we have, still have $60 million quarterly gap compared to, to pre-COVID that we will gradually recover. So overall, I think it's long growth and fee recovery that will allow us to, to have a, a, a stronger growth in revenue in the second half of the year. And just on that, Nacho, quick follow-up. Is the retail lending or loan growth in LATAM also impacted by the excess liquidity we are seeing in U.S. or Canada, or is it more to do with uh, vaccinations and political uh, uncertainty? No, I would say it's uh, similar to what we see in other countries. Our credit card billings are still 20% below pre-covered levels, so a lot of consumers have liquidity. There's been a 35 billion disbursements of early pension funds in Peru, and particularly that is the case when we look at Chile, Ibrahim, we see also lower consumer lending demand because of high liquidity. But we expect one positive aspect in the region, particularly for Mexico, for the Caribbean and Central America, is tourism coming back. So restaurants, travel, entertainment, all of these activities are going to allow consumers to increase spending. Got it. Thank you. Operator, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. Our next question is from Scott Chan with Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. So, so just uh, following up on, on international briefly, if I kind of look at the vaccine rollout um, in a lot of the uh, regions in the Pacific Alliance, it seems like it's very modest relative to North America. Uh, maybe you can kind of comment on, on vaccine rollouts going forward and, and how that's going to affect the recovery, uh, I guess, in terms of your portfolio book. Thank you for your question. Um, well, you know, infection rates of COVID, there's some volatility like everywhere in the, in the world, but I, we're seeing infection rates going in the right direction. These countries are managing COVID basically to ensure hospital capacity is available. In terms of vaccination, uh, Chile is a success story worldwide. More than 50% of the population um, already got uh, at least one, one shot. So Chile is doing very well. Because of vaccination and because of the commodity cycle, we expect a very strong recovery of the economy in Chile. And the rest of the countries uh, are accelerating vaccination. Rates of vaccination are between 8, eight and 15%. But we expect that they would reach around 50% of vaccination by the end of the summer. COVID, however, is not impacting the economic recovery of the Pacific Alliance countries. 
All of, the, all of them reported higher GDP growth in the first quarter of 2021 than estimations, and overall, the economies of the Pacific Alliance countries should grow around 6.5% during 2021. Thanks. A couple. And just lastly, just on uh, global wealth management, uh, solid results. You called the Canadian wealth uh, being exceptionally, exceptionally strong, and I think we can kind of see the data in Canada. But perhaps can you give us an update on your international wealth management? Uh, that is tracking a bit lower, but just any, any, uh, anything that you're seeing there would be helpful. Sure, thanks. It's, it's Glenn here. So, um, as you mentioned, you know, I think the uh, the strength of our of our Canadian business um, is is really its breadth. So we're seeing you know strong growth, revenue growth, uh, market share gains across all the businesses. But that's also starting to happen in international as well. So I think one of the benefits of a strong Canadian franchise is our ability to invest in our international growth. And so we've been working very closely with Nacho and his team. We've made very good inroads uh, in terms of our institutional ultra-high net worth business there as well uh, with Jaroslawski Fraser, and we expect that to continue. So we saw actually quarter over quarter um, growth within our wealth management business in international, and we're seeing that uptick, and we would expect that momentum to continue. Okay. Thank you very much. Operator, can we have the next question, please? <coughs> Thank you. As a reminder, you may press star 1 anytime for any questions. Our next question is from Paul Holden with CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. So one of the key um, topics I think has been discussed over the last week is around uh, interest rate sensitivity with increasing probability that central banks have to move uh, sooner than later. So wondering if you could just provide us with a quick update on what a 25 basis point rate increase might mean for overall earnings, and if you can, what that might mean for international banking in particular, given that rates might increase in that part of the world sooner than uh, U.S. and Canada. Thank you, Paul Raj. Thanks for your question. So I'll address the international banking one first, and then I'll get to the all bank and how we think about interest rate risk and how we manage it. International banking simply put a 25 basis point change in the rates, and you're absolutely right. It's be expected to be earlier compared to, say, Canada or the United States, for that matter, will be roughly about $30 million per annum for their interest income line. So it's almost like, you know, a little over one basis point, you know, for, for more than a million dollars. Easy way to think about it. The Pacific Alliance would be about $25 million, and the Caribbean, we think, a 25 basis point annualized will be roughly $30 million. So if you do the math, it's a little over $30 million for the business line as a whole. Coming back to the, to the impact for the bank as a whole, so we all disclosed the 100 basis point impact in the tables. In our case, it's about $300 million for 100 basis points increase. And that's just simple math. As you probably know, it's a modeled outcome based on a number of assumptions. It reflects 100 basis points in a parallel rate shock effect and is based on a con common balance sheet and makes no assumptions for management actions. As you know from our previous conversations, we take a lot of management action to manage the interest rate risk on the balance sheet of the bank, and that generally does not get reflected. Case in point, you know, last year in Q1 2020, we were the only Canadian bank which was, which was positioned to benefit from rate decline. That's what happened in Q2 2020. We monetized a lot of the swaps. It continues to benefit us and will continue to benefit us right through to 2024 because of the way hedge accounting works and so on. 
For example, that benefit is not included in these sensitivity tables. So right now we are positioning the bank again for rising rates across the across the footprint, frankly, through our balance sheet. So those numbers which you see, and if you equate the 25 basis point all bank, you'll come to a math of about $75 million for the bank. But that will be significantly higher than the $75 million as rates increase, how our hedges play out, and at what time we take off those hedges and monetize it. So a bit of a long-winded answer. You start with the table, but the table is kind of a blunt instrument. But there's lots of actions we take in the bank which will help enhance the rates impact on our interest income for the bank as a whole. So if I can have a follow-up on that, if I may, just if I'm using the 75 and recognizing it could be something higher than that, I mean, what are kind of the... I don't know, the bands that might be around that. Could it be, you know, as high as 50% higher? Are we talking more 25% higher? Just any kind of um, help there uh, would be great. I'll try, Paul. I think I'll give you a case in point. If you went back to the Q1 2020 disclosure, a rate decline for us would have been $197 million in that disclosure. And I can tell you the benefit that we had because of the way our swaps played out is about four times that. So it's a little hard to predict how it will be because it depends on future interest rate increases, what the markets do, and so on, based on the positions we have taken to enhance the return. But I think it's safe to assume that it will be a minimum 50% higher, likely will be significantly higher. Got it. That's helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Operator, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. Our next question is from Gabriel Deshane with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'd like to talk about the write-offs in international, and I appreciate the, you know, the the the, the comment that we've hit a peak here. Um, but the way I look at it is, we've over the past couple of quarters, anyway, we've nearly two billion dollars of these loans have been written off. Uh, you know, how important is it to replace those loans for the segment to get back to its pre-COVID revenue run rate? And is there any possible change? I heard something about de-risking the bank. Are, are, are you changing the way you approach these originations on, uh, going forward? Um, or, is there, or did I misunderstand that? So let me take that, that question, Gabe. Um, well, first, I think that we, are, we have been growing in, in, in mortgages, in commercial. That's where the recovery has started. But we expect, as I mentioned earlier, that retail is, is, is coming back, will come back during the second half of the year. Um, basically, uh, we are seeing a retail, we, we expect to resume retail loan growth in the, in, the, in the third quarter and accelerate particularly in the, in the fourth quarter of the year. And, um, and basically, it's, it's around uh, consumer spending in credit cards. That's where we see the most significant gap compared to pre-COVID levels. Um, uh, however, uh, I would say that it's important for us to, to replace uh, these balances as long as we can do it with good credit quality. And, uh, and this has been a trend in the market. The market, we've seen a decline in unsecured. We, 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 we see this gradually flattening, and it will come back, and it will help us to grow our loan book, I would expect, by the end of the year at similar pace, both in commercial and retail. And, and when you say retail rebounding, you're talking about mortgages in the second half, not not these cards and other personal loans. I will, I'm, I'm saying, especially mortgages, we are doing very well in mortgages. We have had very strong growth, 
but we expect also Unsecure to accelerate, especially in the last part, in the last quarter of the year. Okay. And then uh, quickly on uh, the other segment, uh, asset liability management activities, you know, that, that NII line, you know, hitting a pretty big number there. What, what are you doing, uh, ALM-wise? Thanks, Gabe. That's right. So I'll, I'll try to help you with that. And uh, the NII line benefits from a few different things. I talked about the, the swap monetization that we did, so that's going to help the NII line right through till 2024. Um, the second component I call out is volumes. So our wholesale funding volumes have been lower as our deposits have been very strong across the PNC footprint. And we're also being very diligent in managing the volume of our issuances compared to the asset growth that we expect, taking into account the deposit, uh, you know, windfall we've been having for some time. The third one I call out is rates. You know, we're able to finance these, uh, you know, expensive wholesale funding coming off our books of maturity. We're able to do it at lower rates. Final thing I would call out is we manage the interest rate risk very closely on the balance sheet. So you'll see a lot of benefits attached to it, and our intention is that that should continue to support the other segment through future quarters as well. Great, thanks. Operator, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. Our next question is from Lamar, Lamar Prasad with Comark Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks, thanks. My first question is for Daniel. Daniel, just a point of clarification. I think I heard you suggest that uh, impaired losses have peaked and similar, similar levels of performing releases that we saw this quarter. But uh, if I add those two up, I would I would think that uh, total PCL's guidance for the back half of the year would be below the mid. 30s range, considering that you're at 33 basis points this quarter. So I'm wondering, like, did I hear that uh, incorrectly? And uh, maybe you could just clarify that. No, Lamar, I think you heard that correctly. Um, so we're, we're definitely guiding towards mid-30s on the impaired PCLs, on the uh, total PCLs, um, with a trending downwards, but remains slightly above pre-COVID on the stage three or, or impaired PCLs. Um, and we get our confidence on that, looking at, you know, the overall macro picture, the performance of our book and the credit quality of our book, all three are uh, performing very, very well, uh, reflecting on the quality side, the shift to secured on the customer front, and on the performing side, the, the very good results of our early stage delinquency. So that's, as we put all the numbers together, tomorrow, that's how we look at it, and those are our, uh, those are our forecasts for the remainder of the year. Okay, but... Uh, like you're at 33 this quarter, and if I assume a, a lower level of impaired and similar releases, I, I just don't get how you get to the mid-30s. Yeah, no, but of course there's growth in there as well, Lamar, and that goes into the overall PCL calculation as well. Okay, now my next question is for uh, Dan Rees. Uh, just on, if I look at your, your business and government loan growth, it was actually quite strong this quarter. So I'm wondering if you could talk to what drove this growth and the sustainability going forward. Sure, morning. Thanks, Lamar. You know, our investments in the business bank kind of continue to pay fruit, whether that's in our priority provinces or some of the industries where we're, we have notable expertise. That would include real estate and agriculture in particular. Uh, you're also seeing good growth in the marketplace. But this quarter, again, we think on both deposits and loans, so balance sheet combined, we're number one in Q2. And that's an impressive result given that we had said just two short years ago that this was a priority area for us. In Q2, 
we reached the number three spot in terms of total deposits in the sector. There's nothing unusual happening on the government side. This is all business growth in the business bank. Gotcha. Thank you. Operator, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. Our next question is from Doug Young with Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Just going back to international banking quickly, just based on my calculation, I mean, pre-tax, pre-provision earnings, it looks like it's down 31% in Peru, about 22% in the Caribbean. Chile, Mexico, Colombia, it's roughly flat. So, and I, and I kind of get the Caribbean, so I want more focus on Peru. And I guess specifically, you know, what you're seeing in that market, and I would imagine most of the credit card comments relate to that market, but really, what's, you know, and, and specific to Peru, you know, what are the drivers that are going to turn that around? And then just the second part of the question, Raj, you know, how, can you remind us how you are hedged uh, in terms of currency for the international banking? And if you can kind of talk a bit about it by uh, by region, that would be helpful. Thank you. Yeah, let me take, you, take the first part of the question. Yeah, definitely it's Peru where we have the biggest opportunity offside in terms of a credit card personal loans growth. The unsecured, uh, the unsecured portfolio has declined more, and, and also we expect uh, an acceleration of commercial growth that didn't, was muted this quarter. However, in Peru we have uh, we have grown significantly in mortgages. We continue to we expect to continue to do that 10% year over year. And uh, similar to the rest of the country, the positive signal I can share with you is retail bookings, not only in, in mortgages but also in credit card personal loans. Um, had a 20% increase in QRQ. So we are seeing definitely a, a better trend. On the other hand, while revenues have been soft, we have had very good expense management in Peru with an 11% reduction year over year. So we're trying to offset as much as we can until revenues come back. And also, like Daniel mentioned, uh, credit quality is a very good story. In terms of uh, PCL, we have declined 35% year over year. And uh, we've had a very good payment behavior on the back of the early disbursement of pension funds, employment recovery in the economy, and our our collections and digital capacity supporting um, supporting uh, collections. So I would say uh, credit and, and expenses are a very good story. We are really waiting for the economy that we expect a strong economy, a strong a strong recovery, sorry, on the second half of the year with GDP growth of 9%, potentially even more, to uh, to help us grow revenue with unsecured lending coming back. Doug, it's, it's Brian. I just want to add a little something there is that you know, you're pointing to the recovery in, in the Pacific Alliance is lumpy, and that's uh, the nature of our footprint and, and uh uh, the maturity of the banking markets in the individual countries. I, I'd highlight our return on equity in our Mexican business was 15% this quarter. Mexico and Chile have returned to pre-COVID level of earnings. And, and Peru's the laggard, and that's just a function of it had a very, very difficult COVID. The nature of the banking market is more unsecured than secured there. The mortgage market is in its nascent stage. So, uh, you know, it's going to take time to come back. So, and, and it, we're, we're showing signs of that. So, regardless of the election of the outcome, the GDP or the growth rate in Peru this year will be 9%, and we'll see how it does next year. But, uh, you know, we, we expect a strong recovery in Peru, but uh, it, it'll work out sequentially quarter by quarter. And just on currency, Doug, it's 
Um, I'll tell you, as a philosophy, we hedge as appropriate to reduce the volatility of the bank's quarterly earnings. That's the principle. And to give you a little bit of context, including the international bank, our exposure in U.S. dollar earnings actually significantly is higher than our exposure to the Pacific Alliance countries. So U.S. dollar, Jake's business, and GBM, we have other businesses which are part of international banking, which have offshore books. Then we hedge, we consider several factors. You know, expected currency volatility, reason for the volatility, is it structural, short-term, macroeconomics, and of course the ease and cost of hedging. So one example I'll give you is the Jamaican dollar. It's not possible to hedge it, so we think about it as a basket of currencies and how do we want to manage the, uh, you know, the hedge relationships to ensure the volatility is reduced from an earnings perspective. So we disclosed the impact of FX, as you know, in our tables in the quarterly report. This quarter was slightly elevated as, you know, about six cents, impact of the EPS, about $70 million or so. Slightly higher than what we would expect, but that's because, you know, the Canadian dollar strengthened against pretty much every currency other than the Chilean peso. Most of that impact, Dr. to give you context of the $74 million or the $97 million we have year-to-date, almost 90% of it relates to the U.S. dollar. So the U.S. dollar strengthened almost for 9.2%, I think, year over year. That has an impact to us. And the U.S. dollar is one currency we know will move around and helps us. And, um, you know, it's a little bit outside impact this quarter, but generally our hedging philosophy is to reduce the volatility. And we try to hedge, you know, it could be 50% one quarter, it could be 100% another quarter. It depends on the various factors that we consider. Thank you. Okay, operator, can we have the uh, next question on the line? Thank you. Our next question is from Mario Mandaka with TG Security. <coughs> Please go ahead. Good morning. Uh, Raj, probably for you. When I listen to the bank talk about results, and there seems to be a greater emphasis on ALM and what you do to hedge interest rate risk, a greater emphasis from Scotia than what we hear from your peers. And sometimes I struggle to understand whether this is just emphasis uh, or whether Silk is actually doing something, being more active than the peer group. So when I look at the results and I drill down, it does seem like there's something more meaningful going on here because the margin for the bank outside of your domestic and U.S. – I'm sorry, domestic and international uh, P&C businesses, that margin, if you will, is performing a lot better than what you see for your peers. So I guess what I'm getting at now is, if the bank was able to, to have the successful ALM as interest rates declined, uh, how do you then position yourself for rising rates without some cost? Like, how do you just flip that from one quarter to the next without there being some cost from changing the hedges? How, how does that work? Thanks for your question, Mario. That's, that's a very detailed question, and, you know, I, I'd be happy to talk to you offline more than what I would speak on the call here. But your point is valid. I'd use the term that we do hedge the interest rate risk on our balance sheet, what I would call dynamically. We look at it, not to exaggerate, we look at it every day. We look at the asset profile changes. We look at the liability profile changes. We look at what the markets tell us. And then we look at saying, okay, how should we position the bank? So there's a natural positioning that the bank has. Interest rate risk, as you know, is just inherent to the business that we do. How well we manage will reflect in the results. That's not to say we get it right all the time. Our expectation is we either have to reduce the volatility of interest rates on our earnings. If we can enhance it, even better. 
some of the examples I quoted was, uh, you know, how we position the bank Q120 and how we benefit it. Right now, we're positioning it primarily through derivatives that we put. And I'll use a simple example of interest rate swaps. How do you use it to position the balance sheet appropriately, depending on the tenure of the balance sheet, either on the asset side or on the liability side, and the interest rate curve? Your point is valid on net interest margin compression. Just look across, you know, Q1 2020, our margin was 2.45% at the all-bank level. It's 226. That's about an 8% decline. That's significantly lower than all our peers. Some of it is because of our asset mix. Granted, you know, we're more secure than some of our peers, but some of it is what you pointed, how we manage the interest rate risk. We'd like to keep it flat. We'd like to keep it stable, and we'd like to enhance it in an increasing interest rate environment. Like right now, we have positioned the bank not just through the balance sheet, how it's positioned, but also some of these hedging activities which will help us enhance those returns. Like I mentioned, you know, happy to talk offline to give you more color and any further questions that you might have on that as a follow-up. So, Raz, just as a follow-up then, is it fair to say that when rates go down, Scotia wins, when rates go up, Scotia wins, that Scotia just, just guesses right? Is that is that the right way to look at it? Yeah, if we get our hedging right, yes, absolutely. And, you know, the past, yes. Future, I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Operator, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. Our next question is from Sreb Movahedi with BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. First, if I can, not sure. Obviously, a tough, tough operating environment in the Pacific Alliance region in particular over the last year, and I think you have done quite a bit of work, uh, certainly around expenses. We're seeing the recoveries come through now. But I'm I'm just curious to know what else is left for you to do besides waiting for that economic tailwind or the higher tide that's going to hopefully raise all boats. I'm trying to understand what other levers are at Scotia's uh, behest here to help push this forward and whether or not uh, uh, you can paint a picture of what your uh, loan book may look like, for example, from a secured, unsecured retail versus commercial 18, 24 months from now, and how that would compare to a pre-pandemic level. So I'm just trying to kind of get a feel for what is happening to the risk appetite, if anything, between now and when we get through it. Thank you for your question, Sharad. Look, I, I, I would put it this way. Big picture, there's a, a delay. We are, it's going, it's taking a little bit longer in the Pacific Alliance countries to, to boom, to, to, for the economies to boom than is happening in North America. But I think this will happen. I'm very optimistic about uh, the economic recovery and, and, and thinking in 12, 18 months. I think it's very likely we will see in the Pacific Alliance countries long growth of double-digit, 10% growth uh, as the economy's recovery. Uh, let's, let's think about, again, the demographics, the le- relatively low lending, low level of lending to GDP. So uh, once the economy start uh, reactivating, financial services will have a very significant opportunity. Now, even, even today, uh, Saurabh, I, I expect that between Q2 numbers and the, end, and the balance of the year, our loan book will grow around mid-single digits. And this will be continue to be driven by commercial, by mortgage. It continues to be strong, but retail will come back gradually, including on secure lending. Also, as, as I mentioned, we, we will see a, an important fee recovery. There's a 60 million gap. 
And I, 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 I'm glad you mentioned expenses because we have, I think, a very strong performance in expenses. We reduced another $70 million in the last quarter, 5% reduction in expenses. And it's because there's a great digital growth that is helping us to improve. NPS scores improved in all Pacific Alliance countries, in all channels. It, all retail sales are around 50% of all retail sales in units. And, it, and this is driving tremendous productivity in branches as we deploy digital onboarding that it allows us to adjust our Salesforce capacity in branches. So I see opportunities across the board, but you are right. I think loan growth is going to be the key driver, and I expect, I expect retail to start to resume growth in Q3. And um, commercial, we already grew, grew 1.5% this quarter. I expect commercial will accelerate in future quarters with the economic recovery. Um, but not to... It's Brian. I just want to add to that, just to reemphasize that we increased our stake in Scotiabank Chile too, seven uh, percent to eighty-two percent, and and that's a an asset we know very well, a, a country we're very comfortable operating in, and those type of uh, opportunities uh, after a period of time like this come up occasionally, and uh, we're obviously in a position to capitalize on them. Sorry, you go ahead. Sorry, Sorry I, I just wanted to just – I appreciate that, Brian. Thank you very much for, for that reminder. I just wanted to get from – but not sure there is no change in risk appetite. Is that, is that the right way to think about this? Absolutely. There is no change of, of risk appetite. So, Rob, what we have done is to, to grow within our strategy. We are gradually reopening our lending activity in retail following the economic recovery. That's really following the market opportunities, and we expect to have – a long, strong loan growth in the in the last part of the year, and accelerating into 2022, which I expect international banking will experience strong growth, deep driven by uh, loan demand, driven by by double digit growth in loans and deposits, uh, and strong economic activity. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. you all. Thank you all for participating in our call today. On behalf of the entire management team, I want to thank everyone for participating in our call. We look forward to speaking with you again at our Q3 2021 call in August. This concludes our second quarter results call. Have a great day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.